So today we'll be celebrating the Lord's Supper together and we'll be remembering the sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross. Now, many of us um, have come from different traditions, grown up in different ways, learned to celebrate communion of the Lord's Supper, uh, maybe in a way that's um, different, maybe even the people sitting around you. And we talked last time, uh, which has just been a couple of months ago, about how we at Capital City Church celebrate the Lord's Supper and we do it in remembrance of Jesus, that we do it in a way that sort of recreates that moment when we've become believers in the first place and, and make sure the condition of our heart is the exact same today as it was at that point in time when we confessed our sin, believed who Jesus is, and asked him to be in charge of our lives that when we celebrate communion, that the cracker and the juice represent the body and the blood of Jesus that was spilled. And when we come and do this as a church family, we really focus on three things. One is a reflection of the facts, the historical events of who Jesus is. One is a contemplation uh, or an examination of our own heart and our own spirit. And then the third is sort of a thanksgiving where we celebrate these things and, and celebrate together the sacrifice Jesus made and the new life that we have. But let me take you all the way back for just a second to try to set the stage and uh, maybe lay out some context or foundation for where we're heading today. Way, way back, and I mean back at the very beginning, the time when, when God created the first two humans, Adam and Eve. And when they were created, they were put into a place, a garden, the Garden of Eden, that was created in the way that the world was supposed to exist almost impossible for us to imagine the fact that there were two humans who were born without the influence of, of sin, living in a place, a world, a garden that didn't have any of the consequences or influence of sin. That when they experienced the Lord, they experienced God with their senses, they could hear Jesus walking in the garden. They could see him. They could, they could experience what you and I hope to experience and know one day we will experience, and they could do it every day. That one day, and we don't understand all of the reasons, Eve chose to eat the forbidden fruit from the center of the garden, the one thing that, that they were told not to do. Adam followed and because of the choice that they made, God, who was loving and merciful, but also holy and just, had to punish sin. There had to be consequences for sin. And I believe God's heart broke that day. But because of his very nature, well, the consequences that he had to impose on Adam and Eve didn't just affect Adam and Eve, but affected the entire world. But they were put out of the garden that an angel was put there to stand guard to keep them from ever going back to that state, to that place that was created in a way that we were intended to live in the first place. So a tension began. And the tension was that humans were supposed to live or called to live in a world in the way we were intended to live, but the world was not in the state that it was intended to be in. And so there was a tension and a friction that, that lasted for years and years and years. Because humans, every human after Adam and Eve and after the curse was born sinful, the Bible tells us that 
that all of us sinned and the wages of sin is death and the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus, but that every person who was born after the time of Adam and Eve was born sinful and in separation from God, there had to be something done. So for years and years and years, people lived with this tension. The Old Testament law was given to remind people that it was impossible to be perfect to be smart enough to earn our way or to think our way to God, to be moral enough to be able to tip the scales in our favor. And the Bible talks about how all of humanity, the entire world, was looking for a solution, was looking for a savior, was looking for someone to bridge the gap that we were all born experiencing. And that savior was Jesus. When Jesus came into the world, providing forgiveness of sin and a reconciliation with God and a freedom and a peace in this life that we could only have dreamed of but now can know, well, everything changed. And we still are called to this day to live in a way that we were intended to live in the first place in a world that doesn't exist the way that it was intended to exist. And there's no part of this world that is not tainted by sin. Sin exists in a general way and affects every nook and cranny of the world we live in, but it also exists in a very personal way. And sometimes we struggle with the sin that lurks within. Sometimes it's the temptation that comes from the outside. But the battle for our spirit, for our heart, to make sure that we're pure, that we're right before God is one that we fight every single day. The Apostle Paul talks about this battle and he says, the things I want to do, I don't do. The things that I, that I don't do, I don't want to do. And I do do, he had all these do's and all these wants and all this stress. And he throws his hands up and he says, what a wretched man am I? It should be easier than this living for God. But I live in such a hard world and I have so much trouble and so much turmoil inside me. And he looks at God and he says, help me. I'm a sinful man. So you and I today are going to be talking about this idea of sin, this concept. And a lot of people don't like to talk about it. It's certainly not popular in our world today. We don't even like to think that sin exists. Sometimes we think of, of uh, the things that we may do as omissions or infractions or oversights. Maybe somebody else sins against us or against others. And we like to talk about grace and we like to sort of overlook the responsibility that we have of holiness. And today I just want to go right at it and just talk to you about the fact that we live in a world and we live in a state where we struggle with sin. A definition of sin, any thought, any action, any attitude that's displeasing to the Lord. And when we become believers in Jesus Christ, when we confess our sin, then we come to him holding nothing back. Everything that we know about ourselves, we give to the Lord. And we say, I confess my sin. Every part of my life belongs to you. I don't know everything there is to know about you, but everything I do know about you, I trust. Here I am, all of me. And then we tell him that we want him to be in charge of our life, that we want to live our lives a different way. And then we go about living that life or our lives in this way. And that's called following Jesus. And we're encouraged from time to time to go back and to reflect and to examine the state of our soul. I look at it sort of like our house. 
is the house that lives within my heart? Is it clean? Now, I have a pretty clean house and it's not because of me, it's because of my wife. She's a great house cleaner, keeper. In our house, there's no men's work and women's work. There's just work sometimes that if she doesn't do, it's not gonna get done, right? It's not because that she's a woman and I'm a man. It's just because sometimes, yeah, that's just the way that it ends up. And she likes to keep things neat and tidy. But you know, most of our house, if you drop in, is gonna look pretty good. You'll walk in, you'll be like, hey, look at that. Melik's got their, you know, their life pretty well together. The house is clean, the floors are usually, you know, we got that magic little robot that goes around and we have a couple dogs that track stuff inside and out, but by and large, we stay on top of it. Dishes are usually done within a day or so. We don't have kids at home to make our lives hard and, and, and leave toys everywhere. But you know, if you were to examine our, our house um, and you would really look carefully, and I'll just tell you this, I'll confess to you, that we have a storage area downstairs in our basement. Now, if you go to, down to the basement, it looks pretty good. You know, we've got a little pool table over here and big TV and a couch, and it looks pretty good. But if you turn to your, to your right when you go into the basement and you open the door, you'll see this storage area that nobody else sees. And because nobody else sees it, we stash stuff in there. What's the big deal? Nobody sees it. Now, in a house, it's not a big deal. Everybody has a junk drawer, a storage closet, a place where they stash stuff. But when it comes to the condition of our heart or our soul, well, we can't have these, these junk drawers, these stash closets, these storage areas, because God sees everything. And when we allow these thoughts, actions, and attitudes to creep into our life, it robs us of our joy. It takes away our freedom. And we're not living according to our purpose. The people we want to be, the people we were intended to be, we can't be. And we have to take it seriously. So part of communion is reflecting, making sure that our heart, that the home that lives within our heart is back in that same condition as when we became Christians in the first place. And so that's our focus today, that middle part, that second part of the three emphases of communion. And I want to take you through a story today after we look at some instructions from the Apostle Paul uh, that will help us, I think, at least it'll ground this principle, it'll seed it deeply within our hearts, and then we can choose what we're going to do about it. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 11 is giving some instructions, and this is just reminding us how important these things are. He says, so then whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner with sin in their hearts, with, with unconfessed sin, with things stashed away that you know about and we haven't dealt with, will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat the bread and drink the cup. Now, here's a quote from Soren Kierkegaard that I want to just sort of prime the pump with. He says, in the life of the spirit, there's no standing still that if a person doesn't know what's right, the very second he or she knows that it's the right thing to do, for example, confessing the sin, making it right, clearing the slate with the Lord, then knowing becomes more and more obscured. The longer we allow things to go, the longer we let things be stashed or hidden or squirreled away, the harder it is to even see these things and the harder it is to deal with these things. And so the encouragement is examine the heart, deal with the sin, experience the freedom, know the peace, live our purpose, because all of us want to be followers of Jesus, but we get stuck sometimes. And we think, well, God just wants to take away my fun. And that's why he doesn't want me to sin. But if we're really honest with ourselves, any of us who've lived any period of time, we know what the end result of 
actions, attitudes, and thoughts displeasing to the Lord are that they promise us everything and almost deliver. But what they really do is take us for a long walk out into the middle of nowhere, right? And leave us for dead. And sometimes we spend our entire lives chasing after this wind this, that we can never get, believing the lies and the promises and end up wasting our life instead of investing it in the things that matter. So let me talk to you very quickly about a story of a man who came face to face with Jesus and made the right decision. When he understood his sinfulness, he understood who he was and he saw who Jesus was and he knew the difference, his response I believe it was the time when Simon Peter exercised saving faith, even though he'd had experiences with Jesus prior to this. Jesus had even healed his mother-in-law. Jesus had even invited him to follow him. He was sort of a part-time follower of Jesus, but many believe, and I'm one of them, that this was the moment when Simon Peter, Peter the disciple, the one you and I talk about, and the one we study, and the one we learn from, when he really decided he was going to be a follower of Jesus, this moment, in this boat, at this time, in the middle of this miracle. And so I want to read it to you. One day, Jesus was standing by the lake of Gisineret. And this is the Sea of Galilee. The people were crowding around him and listening to the word of God. Two things are important. One, Jesus, who is God, was communicating the word of God, the truth of the gospel. And that is, there's a different way to live. That we can be forgiven from our sins. That the kingdom of God exists for people like you and like me. And the crowds that were following him were pretty intentional by this point, but they, were, they had different motivations. Jesus had cast demons out. He had done miracles. He was a great orator. People wanted to listen to his stories. I mean, they didn't have cable. They didn't have internet. They didn't have much to do back then. So if a person could tell you know, good stories and could keep your interest, you'd kind of follow them around for the entertainment purpose. They were seeing things they'd never seen before, observing, experiencing. But some people were genuinely wanting to find out who Jesus was. They really thought maybe this is the guy Maybe this is the Messiah, the one who was going to bridge that gap, the one who the Old Testament promised would bring reconciliation between humans and God, the one who could begin to reverse that curse, where we could live the way we were intended to live in a world that doesn't exist the way it was intended to exist. And so Jesus, as he was standing here by this lake, was being pushed by the crowd who was trying to hear him to the edge of the water. He saw at the water's edge two boats left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets. Now I should tell you that fishermen fished at night back in the day at this particular time in this particular area because it was hot during the day and the fish during the day would go deep, deep down into the water. And so everyone knew that if you were a fisherman, you fished at night. It was a nighttime business. You fished at night, you repaired your nets during the day. It's just the way that it was. And so there are a couple things right off the bat that are unusual about this story. And you'll see that in just a second. But what Jesus saw was very usual. Two boats, they would fish in tandem, two boats. Now there were two types of nets in the, uh, in the New Testament, two types of fishing. I'm a terrible fisherman. If you ever want to guarantee that you catch nothing, invite me to go fishing with you. You will have a zero fish day guaranteed, but I do study. And in my study, it told me how to catch fish. If you were a first century person living next to the Sea of Galilee. So there's my expertise, right? I've learned from the experts, two types of nets. One, you could walk along the shallows of the, of the sea or whatever body of water and you 
as one person could take a net and throw it and you could pull the net back in and you would catch fish. That's not the kind of fishing they were doing. The kind of fishing that was a business kind of fishing, the kind of fishing that your family would be involved in, where you'd have business partners, where it would be sort of a a life sort of calling or decision was this kind of fishing. You'd have two boats and you'd have nets that were extremely long. Generally, you'd have one boat a little larger than the other. The smaller boat was a runner boat. The nets could be as much as a half mile long. They had corks at the top of the net and weights at the bottom. The little boat would take off and it would drag the net as far as it possibly could, quarter mile, half mile up the lake or the river or the the sea. And then when they dropped the nets in, they'd go about 30 feet down. The little boat would loop back around to the big boat, making a big circle. And then these crews would begin to pull the nets in. And whatever they had in like a half mile of fish or a quarter mile of fish, they would pull in. And then they would take this fish and the catch out and sort it out and sell it and make their living. So two boats, very customary, very usual. These boats were probably pretty large. And you may ask how I know, because it's the same boats where the New Testament talks about Jesus being in these boats with all of his disciples. So at least 13 people, many believe they required a crew to operate them. The disciples certainly could have been the crew, but many theologians and scholars say as many as 18 people or so could fit in these boats. So they weren't tiny little boats. They were seaworthy boats. There were two of them and Jesus got into one of them, the one belonging to Simon, who's also Peter. He asked him to put it a little bit out from the shore. Now, why did he do that? Well, he needed a break from the crowd. If he pushed out away from the shore, then the water could create a natural sort of an acoustic, like an amphitheater. And he sat down and there's nothing really significant about that. It's the way teachers taught during the day or back in the day. I can't sit when I teach because I don't know, I have too much nervous energy. I like to pace back and forth. But back in Jesus' day, a rabbi would sit and they would teach and the crowd would gather around and they would listen. And so you have an interesting setting here. You have one that to me is fascinating. The Bible simply says, then Jesus sat down and he taught the people from the boat. But I think about Peter, who's the focus of this story or this telling of the story in in Luke. And he was a captive audience listening to Jesus. Now, if you and I went fishing and we got out in your bass boat and we were way out away from shore and I said, okay, I got some things I want to tell you and I sat down and begin to preach, that would be like your worst nightmare, wouldn't it? We go out there for a relaxing day on the water and here I am talking to you about all these things that you may not wanna hear. And, and, but I mean, this is Jesus, the master preacher, the master teacher teaching. And Peter, a captive audience, I had this flashback to where as an earlier uh, pastor, I was on staff at a church and this church was very formal and very sort of traditional. And, and when the preacher would preach, they would stand behind a, a, a pulpit there and they put their Bible on the pulpit and you know, the pulpit came up to about right here and you could bang on it for effect and all that. And then they had these chairs in the back behind the preacher. And the associate pastors or the staff would sit in these chairs. And I used to hate that job because it was on TV and you had to sit in the chairs a certain way and and you had to act like you were really paying attention and take notes. And and it was very important and it was very, you know, uh, that's kind of how I'm thinking about Peter squirming a little bit, you know, maybe he nodded off. I doubt it because it was Jesus teaching. What was Jesus teaching about? Maybe he was teaching about anger or a temper because Peter had one of those and she goes, la, 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 don't want to hear about that, God, you're getting into my business. Maybe he was teaching about 
telling the truth because we know that Peter didn't always tell the truth. Maybe he was teaching about humility or an absence of being selfish because we know that sometimes Peter, he would put himself first. We don't know what exactly Jesus was talking about, but we know Peter was listening. He sat down and he taught people from the boat. Let's move on. When Jesus had finished speaking, he looked over at Peter, at Simon, and he says, put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Now you already know, because we talked about it a second ago, the problem with this. The problem with this was it's daytime, right? You don't fish in the daytime. Back in the day, this time, this place didn't happen, didn't catch any fish. Hot during the day, fish go deep. Nets were only about 30 feet. Lake was much deeper than that. And so there's a tension here. And Simon answered very respectfully. He says, Master, we've worked hard when? All night, because that's when anybody who knows how to fish fishes. We didn't even catch anything at night because the fish aren't here. But because you say so, I'll let down the nets. When they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled the other boat, their partners, to come and help them. And they came and they filled both boats so full that they began to sink. Now, this shows a couple of things. One, Jesus being God had power over nature. That God the Father gave him knowledge that other people didn't have at certain times in certain places. That he'd already spoken these words of truth and emphasized it with a miracle. It's a powerful moment. But in this moment, I think Peter had a choice because Peter was in business for himself. He was living his life for himself to succeed and to win in the game that he found himself born into and the job that he found himself going to every day. What's wrong with that? It's the way it is, right? Born into a world filled with self, trying to win, figuring out what works, one day becomes another, becomes another, becomes another, becomes a lifetime. Without any intervention, we look back on a life and wonder why we even existed in the first place. But Peter, all of a sudden today, God gave him the catch of a lifetime. I mean, jackpot, right? More fish than they'd ever seen before, which meant more money than they've ever had before. Finally, really, really good at what he set his mind out to do. And the temptation would have been him saying, Jesus, I didn't know you were a fisherman. I just thought you were a preacher. You actually have some marketable skills. Why don't we go into business together and you could make me, I mean, we could get rich. I mean, we could fund the kid. He didn't say that. But that would have been the temptation. You could make me wildly successful in life. And I could have, I mean, we could have more money than we could ever shake a stick at, Jesus. We could be the best fishermen in the entire planet. Everybody would know your name, Jesus. But Peter had come face to face with God, had heard the words of truth, had witnessed the power of a miracle. And when he saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and he said, God, you've got to get away from me. I'm the wrong kind of guy to be around you. 
I am the wrong guy to be hanging out with you, Jesus. I'm gonna mess up what you're trying to do. In that moment, he realized who God was and then he realized who he was and he saw the difference and his response was a confession. Not just a little patronizing, sorry for messing up, God, but an acknowledgement of the brokenness of the human condition and the inability to reconcile our own relationship with our Father, the impossibility of living the way we were intended to live in a world that's set up in a way now it was never intended to be set up. So he throws himself down and he says, Jesus, get away from me. Now, two different responses when we come to grips with our sin. Man, my goodness. One of them is to run from God and to hide because we want our sin and we just don't want him to see. Kind of like your mama, all right? Remember when you were growing up, you might want to sin, but you didn't want to sin in front of your mama. I still don't want to, right? I'm 52 years old. My mama, I don't want her to see anything wrong with me. I don't want to do anything bad in front of my mom. I want her to be proud of me and happy. And when I was a kid, if I wanted to do something wrong, I'd do it when mama wasn't looking, right? But I still wanted to do things that were wrong. And so I would look and I'd make sure mom wasn't paying attention. And if mom wasn't paying attention, then I would go and do what I wanted to do. And that's one response for sin, with sin. And that's not really repentance. It's not really saving faith, it's just playing games. But the other response, the right response is this response, where you say, I can't do it. And Jesus, if I were you, I'd probably pick somebody else. And he threw himself down at Jesus' knees and begged for mercy. And Jesus looked down at him and he said, now, you're the kind of person who I can use to build my kingdom and to help set right everything in this world that is so, so wrong. Go away from me, Lord, I'm a sinful person. Can we go back one, please? Sorry. For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish. And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. And then Jesus said to Simon, he said, don't be afraid, Simon. From now on, you will fish for people. Now there's a cool little play on words here. And the cool little play on words is hard to, to really understand in English, but when you look at it in the original language, what this literally means is, is that you've been fishing for fish that'll end up dead, but what you're going to do now is fish for men or women who are going to be alive. And the way that it's constructed doesn't mean alive in this earth or this world. It means going to be alive. Alive here in this life, freed from self and sin, and alive in the life to come as we experience the reality of heaven. When we get to the end of this world and we see Jesus with his arms outstretched saying, welcome home, you were good and you were faithful. So, my challenge to you as we prepare for the Lord's Supper, as we prepare for communion this morning, is to allow God to look into the house of your heart. Invite him in. King David said, God, give me the courage to be able to confess and deal with these sins that I know are there, but also give me the courage and the ability to see those things that I don't even know exist. So you may have a junk drawer you don't even know is there. 
you might have a storage cabinet that you've forgotten about. And over the next few minutes, Ashley and Daniel, are, they're going to lead us in a song and you're just going to sit and you're going to allow God to speak to you. You don't have to sing. All you have to do is just sit there and pray. Invite God to do a little home inspection. And remember the things he points out that shouldn't be there. He doesn't want to take away so that he steals your joy or your fun. He wants you to give these things back to him so that he can renew your peace, that you can experience this freedom and you continue to live your life of purpose. To be the people or the person that God has created you to be, even though we live in a world that exists in a way that it was never created to exist. So ask God to show these things to you. When he points these things out, we confess them. What's that mean? It means saying, there it is. I agree with you, God. That attitude, that action, that thought shouldn't be there. Forgive me for that. I don't want it anymore. And the Bible tells us that when we let go of this old stuff that we've been hanging on to, he gives us this new stuff that we could never get by ourselves. And this is the stuff we're talking about. And this is this powerful process and meaning of celebrating the Lord's Supper coming back the same way we came in the first place. So I'm gonna pray for you. Ashley and Daniel are gonna come and lead us in a song where I just want you to sit and reflect and do business with God. Then I'll come and give you instructions for the rest of the Lord's Supper. Father, thank you for my friends.